Hi guys, uh, welcome back to Chunky Glasses of the Podcast. This is Kevin, um, and this is episode about oh fifty nine, I think. Uh, I've been trying to do this intro at least twenty times now, and I think all I'm going to land on is essentially fuck yeah. Uh, if you are listening to this now, uh, I don't think our guest needs any introduction, and I think listening to this. If you don't know our guest, this will give you a great introduction to his work and uh, and what he's all about. So, uh, last weekend, uh, friends Nikolai was playing a house show at the Alamo in D.C. And we reached out and said, hey, Franz, you want to come talk to us, be on the podcast? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's pretty much the end of the story. That's how it goes. So, uh, right now, I guess I'm just going to turn you guys over to this. Uh, this is, I think, hands down one of the one of my favorite things we've done for the site so far. Um, and right up front, I want to thank Franz for doing this. Uh, but anyways, I'm babbling. Let's just get to it. Uh, here we go. Episode number 59 uh, with Franz Nikolai. It happens here. And it finishes here. Two men enter. One man. Two words of you just a shit sandwich. That right there is a logical fallacy. If you want. No, we are, <laughs> we, we, we are running it. Oh, oh, so I said like, the, the mics are just like, it's, it's running. But uh-huh. um, <clears throat> yeah, I've been over there uh, several times. I did a really long tour a couple years ago um, that ended up being a six month thing that went um, across Eastern Europe through Ukraine, mm-hmm. across Russia on the Trans Siberian, basically from St. From Petersburg out to Lake Baikal. Yeah. yeah. And then down. We did a show. It was myself and my wife. We did a show in in Mongolia, in Ulaanbaatar, and then a couple shows in Beijing. Um, and it's really it's a you know it's great places to do shows. Yeah, <laughs> I just well, finished well, a book manuscript exactly about that. You know, so, yeah, so I mean, I, it, actually, that, that leads into the one thing. Like, so in just like doing, like familiar with your work but obviously i wanted to like research a little and stuff it's sort of intimidating like all the shit that you like and we were on the way over here and i was like daria this guy is actually like living the dream a little bit of being the artist and because you are you're doing everything you you're making music you're writing you're you, you seem to be doing it like on your own schedule completely. Is yeah, any... I mean that's that that's the that is the dream in one sense, but on the other, uh, the flip side of that is is that then if you're not making any money, oh then yeah, it, yeah, then yeah. It's okay, totally, okay, okay. So well, no, my point is that that then it's like then it's totally your fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I mean, but when at what point uh, in your life were you like, 
I, I'm just going to dedicate to this because you've, I mean, you. Well, I went full time in 2006 when when the hold steady got got too big for us to. Yeah, yeah. Got, or just got too busy for us yeah. to reasonably keep our day jobs. I was working at a at a new music nonprofit in the city, uh-huh. and and I kept telling. I was already only on like 15 hours a week, I think, at, at that point. Right. And, and I finally, I, I kept telling my my boss there, like. Um, you know, I got I've got this other tour coming up, blah blah blah. And he's like, "Seems like you got a lot of touring going on, right?" He's like, "Seems like maybe you're not going to be able to do this job anymore." And I was like, "Ah, you're right." You know, so, so I was trying to hold on to it as long as I could. So I mean, you feel like you sort of fallen into like what you're doing, or I mean, do, do you was there a point where you like actually was like, "I want to do this, and I'm going to actively pursue it," or if you just sort of well, I've been actively pursuing being a musician professionally since you know since i was a kid since you're a kid basically once i grew out of being into dinosaurs and wanting to be a paleontologist the next thing was i want to be a musician musician. stuck with that and stuck with yeah um and you know proverbially if you don't have a backup plan it's a good incentive to to achieve what you want to achieve absolutely absolutely Um, um, I mean, so and then you, I guess, what was the first like biggest? I mean, it, so everybody knows you from the whole study. I mean, that's some people do. Some people know me from World Inferno. A lot of people know that, that was the other and, thing. And I was going to say it's World, a Venn diagram that doesn't always cross over. Right, right. Was was World Inferno? Uh, I think that was before Hold Steady. It was absolutely. And, and that was the first big. That thing was, was the involved. first big thing, and yeah. that's where that was. That when you first saw, we were like looked at it and like. Oh, I can do this. This is going to be a job, and this is I'm make well, it no, because World Inferno. I mean, part of the whole ethos was oh, was yeah. we never made any money. Yeah. Plus, as we went on, a, we went on a tour with TV Smith from the adverts one uh-huh. time, and I, I he publishes his his tour diaries, but I didn't get to read them until last year. Right. This tour was in I think two thousand three, and he had written very astutely that. Um, that uh, this band, World Inferno, has since there's nine of them, have solved the problem of how to make money making music because they never will. <laughs> <laughs> that was very clever. It is. I wish he would have said something at the time because <laughs> it, it, it is. I mean, it, well, it's sort of funny because like I, uh, I mentioned seeing you uh, when I started seeing Hold Steady like years ago, and my brother-in-law. Said, oh, he's that guy in the World Inferno. Yeah. Side. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. And, and you just sort of gone from there. Now, you, you left there in, was, now it's been like, I guess, two albums ago. From Hold Steady. From Hold Steady. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was that just needed to move on or? Well, I, yeah, I needed to move on for a, a variety of reasons that all coalesced into. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. guess, you know, this, is, this just isn't going to work out. Yeah, because, like, because like, what, I, what I get from, like, looking at all your work is that, like, you are touching down everywhere and, and seeing, like, not creatively restless, but, but very creatively, uh, very eager and willing and, and needing to explore. Yeah. Like, what well, life doing. is short. I mean, you don't, you don't want to be... I just, it was, I don't want to keep making the same record over and over again, you know? And it was like, I wasn't making enough money to justify, I'm perfectly willing to compromise my artistic principles if I can make a living on it. Well, there goes my whole thesis for this. There's a, a, you know, you make a shockingly small amount of money in a popular indie rock band and it's like, you know, like... I, I was getting the strong impression they didn't want my input anymore. Yeah. 
And I was like, well, if you just want me to be in the back, shut up and play piano, mm-hmm. and I'm not making that much money, and there's all this other stuff and I could do, it's like, like yeah, all right, yeah. well, good luck, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, speaking of the other stuff, like, mm. you can do, I mean, you've, uh, I mean, I guess the highest profile right now, like, you went out on tour with, uh, against me. I did. That was a pretty short stint. I mean, I was with them for, like, four months. Sure, as sure. a hired gun until they, until they, um, Still, they split up with Sire, and I think couldn't yeah. afford to bring another guy out. Right, right. Um, but that was a great palate cleanser for me. Right. Um, because I had I had gotten so sour on rock bands. Yeah. <laughs> by the end of the, my time with the Hold Steady, that and but I had known the Against Me guys for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Like, just like when. Someone had given me a copy of Reinventing Axl Rose right yeah, when it came out, yeah. and it blew my mind. Right. This is, it's a great fucking This record. is an amazing yeah. band, you know? And I actually wrote a fan letter to No Idea <laughs> Records when I... Um, when I, because somebody gave me a burned copy, and I was like, I want to get my own. So I, I yeah. sent in, sent them, sent no idea a check, and and wrote a hand, handwritten fan letter, and I got I got a letter back from them, and um, and then and actually. My band Guignol. I met them th- because this guy who was a World Inferno fan booked them at SUNY Purchase and booked Guignol to open for them right. on this little plaza at the college. Right. And it was, you know, it was cool. It was, it was great. And then World Inferno. We got to. We World Inferno ended up playing with them a bunch of times. We played. We met them in a really sort of picturesque way at. There was a festival, I don't think it goes on anymore, in Asbury Park called Skate and Surf. It's like very like New Jersey it, right, thing. I don't think it doesn't go on anymore. Um, so I, I guess it was 2003, 2002 or 2003, um, World Inferno was playing, Against Me was playing. World, I, Peter and I had met them through Guignol. The World Inferno was very curious mm-hmm. because we'd been playing the record in the van. And we're like, what, these guys? Actually, we had... We were a little worried. Jack was a little worried. Jack from World Inferno, because they had that song about that that line about we want to sing where the music is free and the beer is not the life of the party. And <laughs> and and World Inferno was a very hard drinking band. And they were, yeah. and Jack was like, "Are these guys straight edge? You know, are they gonna, <laughs> is this going to be a problem?" And the answer was no. It was not a problem. No. <laughs> um, but so we were. We were booked on this stage in the convention center at Asbury Park, and there was an outdoor stage, and <clears throat> and uh, and it was raining. So they attempted to combine the two stages by cutting out all the changeover time mm-hmm. between the bands. Um, and so the whole thing was running really late. We had had to get up and load in at something like seven or eight in the morning. We've been drinking <laughs> continuously. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So everybody was in a real state. And right after us was supposed to be this band Snapcase. Uh-huh. You know them? I like do remember Victory Records. Yeah. Um, and their tour manager insisted that they retain their start time, their their scheduled start time. Right. So by the time we got set up, the stage manager said, okay, you guys have... 15 minutes and we're like what (laughs) you know (laughs) okay buddy you know (laughs) so we just started started in and and we're playing our set and snapcase's tour manager came on stage and started turning off the guitar amps (laughs) what and so lucky our guitar player got him in a headlock and started 
punching him in the face. <laughs> and they shut off the sound. Jack's ranting and raving and waving his wine bottle around. Right. Whole, the whole crowd, you know, 3,000 people are chanting, World Inferno, World... And, we're, and, and security tackles Jack, and then everybody piles on. Jesus. And I look over, and the Against Me dudes are all lined up on the side of the stage with their beers in the air just going, like, yeah! Yes. Just like, just, you know, from the sidelines, chucking some empty beer cans into the fray, <laughs> just like totally thrilled. And ever after that, we were really good friends. That's amazing. I mean, I mean, and so now that all makes perfect sense. Well, and, you know, in the small world department, that tour manager for Snapcase went on to work for Against Me. <laughs> so they got his side of the story. And then so, the the longtime sound guy for Hold Steady, this guy Andy from Minneapolis, after he left Hold Steady, was mm-hmm. working for Against Me. And when I knew I was leaving Hold Steady... I had a coffee with him, and he was mentioned that against me was looking to hire a touring keyboards guy. Yeah. I was like, "Well, you should tell Tom to give me a call." You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do, are, are you more comfortable in the uh, being like a supporting band player or being a uh, d- doing your own like very solo, very personal stuff? Because on record, uh, there is some like I guess the most recent thing you did. You did a tour with it was the Cutups, mm-hmm. so, yeah, and then just banged out an album. Yeah, yeah, and and like so, which one of those? Which do you feel like you fit better into? Well, either or one. Either, I mean, either one. I I think my overriding con- concern or interest is to is to have a variety of experiences. Yeah, and actually, I prefer to work with collaborators. Yeah, um, because I think nobody's. You know, grand vision is so absolute that it can't be improved by a couple people to call bullshit on them. Absolutely, um, and and it's it's a it, that's one of the drags in a way of of doing a solo thing is it's mm-hmm. hard to get people to call bullshit on you if you're. It's hard to get people to call bullshit on you, and then eventually, like you 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 risk like disappearing up your own ass. Absolutely, I mean, you know. absolutely, like. That was the the great thing I thought about about World Inferno is that it was a nine piece band, all nine of whom thought of themselves on some level as a as the front person of the band, right. <laughs> and all of whom were songwriters. Or at least seven of the nine right, were, right, were right, songwriters, right. and everyone wanted to have their say. And so the the writing process was slow, and the rehearsals were contentious. But once it passes through nine people's this sucks filter, mm-hmm. it's really stripped all the fat. Yeah, um, and we came out with some really strong songs. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and in Hold Steady, it was not. Uh, you know, Craig and Tad were a pre-existing songwriting team. Yeah, sure. And when I came in, um, you know, the the record that we spent the mo- that that was really Tad and I sitting down together with an acoustic guitar and a piano mm-hmm. and and working on the songwriting and, ha- you know, butting heads and hashing it out in that way was Boys and Girls in America, which yeah. I think is, you know, arguably the best one. Or the, I think, I mean... Uh, it, some people would say Separation Sunday. There's a, but, well, there's a division, I, I, I think. Separation Sunday is more of a lyrics thing and Separation Boys and Girls Sunday, is more I, of I think a music is, thing. is more you don't feel your contribution as much on it. Because half of it was written by Exa- the time I exactly, it. and and then Boys and Girls in America it was like a different. Uh, if you have phases of a band, yeah, like it it was the best of that phase. Yes, I, I agree. Um, and uh, yeah, so 
it's I mean egos are important and you can't do like what you do without a certain amount of ego there, there's <clears throat> right there's no way to do it uh, but when I think that works best like uh, world in front of like is it's like you said it passes through the bullshit filter and everybody understands we all have an ego right but nobody's threatened by anybody else exactly particularly you know like Jack was is such a charismatic and strong personality yeah that it allowed him to be completely generous yeah. with uh, with sharing the attention because he understood that he was always going to be the center of attention. Well, yeah, that and I mean I mean like what do you want at the end? Do you want to be do you want it to be like I did this or do you want it to be this is fucking awesome and this exists? Mm. And that, you know the magic of that band is is that it has that gang mentality, and, mm-hmm. you know, and and this all for one, one for all, and and the the porous line between the band and the audience, you know, in the yeah. particularly in the early days. Um, whereas in the, the the contrary experience in the Hold Steady was was uh, <laughs> Galen, the bass player, put it to me once. He was like, "Man, listen, there's chiefs and there's and there's Indians." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, and I know where I stand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, moving on from that. Yeah. Uh, actually, if you want to tell me a little bit about the uh, antisocial music sure. thing, I mean that seems to be if there there is the working side of the musician, you got to make money and you have to do this for a living. But that seems to be more a, a, a really like a labor of love, like you're plugged into. Like sort of fostering more talent. Is that mouth based? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about the classical music world, or the quote unquote classical music yeah, world, right, the right. new music world, the art music world, yeah. there's no, there's not a really good term for what it is these days. Um, is that not to get diverted down this road of of uh, of how how art is financed? Right, right, right. But there is an infrastructure. In the art music world, in the same way that there is in dance and fine art and the and music like jazz, which oh, is, which is recognized as a as a public good that can't support itself on the public marketplace. Yeah, right. So antisocial music, as a five hundred one c three nonprofit, is eligible for grant money uh, from a variety of institutions, including New York State. Yeah. That allows us to pay everybody, right? You know, small sums, sure. But you know, for people who are, for for working musicians, a hundred bucks here and there adds up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the key is like they are working musicians. I mean, yeah. it's not. I mean, people can go out, I think, and and like be like, I'm going to pick up a guitar and I'm going to be fucking rich, bitch. Yeah, you know. And but that doesn't. It's always like a, a matter of chance whether or not that produces good art, right? And it, I think well, really, I think yeah. the interesting thing about about the financing of of quote unquote pop music, mm-hmm. which is too broad a, a term, to, which is so broad a term yeah, as to yeah. be as to be almost meaningless if if it includes everything from Beyonce to Jandek, yeah, you know. Yeah. But um, would, you, would you put Jandek in pop? For lack of a better word, be, to, for the for, for the point that I'm trying to make, which okay. is that, okay. um, which is about how this music gets financed in the absence of a marketplace, uh-huh. right? Jazz jazz was once pop music, yeah, and once it passed beyond its popular lifespan, 
these institutions went into went into action to keep it alive. Yeah. And there's a I think there's a section of for what is for lack of a better word called indie or underground or alternative mm-hmm. music that is not you know it's not it's it's not going to survive in a marketplace. No. No. And but there's still this residual uh resistance People don't want to see how the sausage is made, right? So, so like, there's there's resistance to things like to to things like Kickstarter and things like licensing, and I totally understand that. And but people, but the alternative, it's it's a funny sort of hypocrisy because you know I grew up in the '90s when the when the the dominant narrative of independent music was fuck record labels, yeah, right, like. You, you, it, it's better to do it yourself and yeah. own your own masters and not be beholden to a label who gives you money to make a record. And now that there is an opportunity to to fund your own music and own your own masters and not be beholden to a label, people are like, well, why, you know, they don't want to see it. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, that's, too fringe. that's too fringe, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, wait, well, no, it's too... It's too um, it's it's too it's too transparent right like why can't you ask your label for money <laughs> it's funny how it comes full circle it, it it is i mean it's like i mean if we i mean this is and and i would love to have you like back on the podcast to talk about like just pop music for like an hour yeah uh, i mean it is um it, it's a, there's a very there's a it's a there's a difference between like how music is presented and enjoyed to people and how it's made. And like you said, people don't want to see how the sausage is made. Right. You know, but the reality is, is that you don't get that unless you have people working, people learning and people like, like actually like studying to make this, all this music. Yeah. And, um, I don't know if the internet has, is what has leveled that or like, I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, we're we're downstairs at a house show right now. So and, and yeah, play. so well, and house shows are making a resurgence, and I think it's no it's no accident. I think yeah. you know DIY in its current form is is the new paradigm, right? You record at home, you mm-hmm. put it up on Bandcamp, you play, you book your own shows, you play houses, you. Um, but even that, even that's starting to get co opted, co opted a little how bit. How so? Um, I think. Uh, by marketing, at least, I, I, I don't think by actually people coming out to it. But I think, but in the marketing, is people will be like, "This is a DIY recording," and it is not. It'll be like I don't want to say not a good recording, like, but it just doesn't sound like it. Somebody could do better, but they just put it out. But be, there's an audience that'll buy into that. Hmm. You're th- you're s- people have always fetish fetishized quote unquote poor audio and, may- and maybe that's that, that's what I'm talking about <laughs> I mean people like old 78s yeah. not because they sound good but because they sound the way they do and and they've decided that that sounds good mm-hmm. right there's always someone who will decide that a format sounds good people yeah. decide that cassettes sound good people decide that vinyl sounds good yeah um, and you know there there's always been a, I mean, you know, think about like beat happening or early mountain mm-hmm. goats stuff. It's like 
recorded into a boombox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that becomes then an aesthetic, and it becomes another like the 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 the, the thing with audio. And the current age is that people who grew up with the entire history of recorded music at their fingertips don't make the distinctions between genre, between period, yeah. between between audio quality. Yeah. Right? So in the same way that, you know, the the Beatles recording to four track on the mics that they had at hand all of a sudden then that mic 30 years later becomes something you pay thousands and thousands of dollars for. (laughs) Yes. You know, the aesthetic of someone recording into GarageBand Mm -hmm. becomes an aesthetic. If people like those songs, if people that like that record becomes something that they are then going to want to reproduce, you know, the, 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 Recording yeah. into a Fostex four track is the same as recording into GarageBand using it with its preset reverbs. Like it's just it's a period piece that people are then going to want to reproduce twenty years from now in the same way that I can have a DX7 app on my iPad. Do you have a DX? I do have a DX7. I, app. I have. I, I wish you would come to the basement because I have a DX100. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I don't even know what that is. So the DX100 was a mini DX. It was there were no keytars. Okay. And so you could like but you could put a guitar strap on it. So it was the That's guts ridiculous. of the DX. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, the DX seven is some bullshit. Well the DX seven <laughs> sounded some shitty in the eighties and it sounds shitty but now. But if, if you it's a but like I'm saying, it's a color that if you want it, yeah, you can you can access it because it was used on some records that you like. Yeah. Like there are plenty of records that I really like that objectively sound like bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But very few of them do I think are ruined by that. It just becomes part of the charm of that so, record. So when you say they sound like bullshit, like, then I, I guess what I was the point I was trying to make about um, uh, sort of the aesthetic. Like then what? Like for me at least, I find it's the quality of the material. Like it can sound like bullshit, and then it, it but it's still like great songwriting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some somebody I knew told me it's not the wand, it's the wizard. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's actually fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so so is it is it and like you said, it fetishized like the aesthetic, but like are are you like drawn to both or more or more to one or I think you can use anything as an inspiration. Okay. Right, like the um, the guy I'm working with on a record right now asked me for like to make him a mixtape of the the music that I was thinking about when I was making this record. Oh, and and I had to make a distinction between the stuff that I think sounds like I want the record to sound like, yeah. and the stuff that I was thinking about, because some of that stuff like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did I interrupt? It's it's all good. You're on the podcast. You're on the podcast. Oh, that's the podcast? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome, man. Cool. A hey, pleasure to meet you. Hey. Yeah. Uh, I live here, so I apologize. Oh, right on. No, hey, no listen, it's your house. You know where you want. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll we'll be done in a few minutes. Cool. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. Cheers. Um, right. What was I saying? Oh, and some of it, it was like, you know. I, I feel obligated to put it on there because it was some of the stuff that I was thinking about writing the songs, but with the caveat that I would never, ever want the record to sound like that. Right. right. You, you know, in this case particularly, it was 80s uh, power pop, like 
Nick Lowe, Marshall Crenshaw, like that whole world of, uh, you know, the post Elvis Costello. Sure, sure. Where the production sounds terrible, mm-hmm. but the songs are really strong yeah, yeah, yeah. and they really have this propulsive, you know, you know, Buddy Holly kind of quality to yeah, them. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very, very tight. Um, Buddy Holly is the best way to put it. I mean, it's just like rewriting these Buddy Holly songs, but adding a little extra that you can't quite grasp onto. Yeah. And um, and a lot of that stuff has never been remastered either, so it sounds particularly cruddy. Right, right. But it's a thing. I mean, at the same time, like, the the music that is, that is of the moment mm-hmm. is recapturing some of those production styles, like the 1986 production style in a way that I never would have imagined would be, would, <laughs> yeah. would come back around. Well, it does. <laughs> it, it comes back around. But I mean, it, like, so like, take like some of your solo records though, like you can drop into them and like, I, I can hear, you know, mid nineties, not power pop, but like sort of indie pop and not the sound per se, but like the lyricism of it. Well, the my the record that has had more influence on me than any other probably is American Music Club Mercury. Okay, which well, is exactly that's, that. That's exactly which that. Which is Mitch Froom, nineteen ninety three. You know, so so that's the thing. So then there you go. I yeah. mean, if they, if that's like if that's driving the front court, then you know that's where we're going. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot that you know. Obviously, that's that's one record out of thousands. But that's that was really a formative record for me, and I still think it. It holds up. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely holds up. I mean, it, it, it's a standard. I mean, at this point, I think. I wonder. I wonder. There's a lot of people who don't know American Music Club, and there, but there's a whole generation of people for whom it's a, it's a lodestar. Right, right. Especially around here for some reason. A lot of the D.C. musicians I know who are all of a particular generation yeah. are all Mark Eitzel fanatics. Well, I mean, I think uh, D.C. being a little transitive, I think you get it from all over the country. And like it's a, it's a focus of like people come here a lot of times to do other stuff. Interesting. Yeah, I think all the people. I mean, I I know a, a very particular slice of the D- okay, DC so music you, scene. You're talking about different. So, different so they're all, they're all actually DC natives. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, yeah. But but there are particular. So I probably know who you're talking about, but yeah. Well, like I don't know, like Chad Clark, Bob yeah, Massey, yeah, yeah. some of the dismemberment plan mm-hmm. guys. Like, um, just because through through Gene Cook, who's a member of. Um, anti-social music, but yeah. it also plays with Beauty Pill and some other people. Yeah. Basically, they're all all the friends of hers that I know. Right? Are 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 are, are Mark, Mark Eitzel fans? And it's just a funny little slice. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's damn good materials. It's really good material, and it's it's been interesting for me to follow that that fa- as a fan to follow that path yeah through the past 20 so years. is is that what you hear like when you're writing like the, the sound you hear just sort of buzzing no that, no, no 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 it's not like that because like for example on the new record it's like i don't know i go into a record with three or four artists probably mm-hmm. that i am never ever in a million years going to sound like but i keep them in my head <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like there's a lot Hopefully of sl- one isn't winger no, <laughs> no, but sometimes they are ones that 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 are you know that don't that don't have a critical consensus behind right, them. Right, right, right. Um, 
I find that a useful exercise to try. Like if you have, if if I have a song that I like, or an album that I'm obsessed with, or just, even just a little piece of a song, mm-hmm. or just as an exercise to to say, you know, I wonder if I can write a song like X. Like yeah, like that. And it never comes out like that song, and no one will ever know. Yeah, but it's a, but it's but an exercise. Know. But I know, and I'm always afraid that it, that someone's going to find me out. <laughs> I mean, would that be a bad thing? If I mean, it, no, 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 no. Appropriation and I mean, and I, I, I think is, is I think, part of pop culture. I, I, I think like I influences part that, of pop culture that, that and reference. Little, it's a fine line between influence and it, reference. It is a really fine line. But I mean, if you're writing like really great songs, like it's almost like who cares what you're referencing yeah like you could I mean honestly if you can like rip off say like Jeff Lynn like mid 70s ELO stuff yeah some of that shit and you're just doing it who cares <laughs> yeah and in a way people prefer in, in the pop world if you can if if they if they have something to grab onto like I found that you know, Tad from Hold Steady was very musically conservative yeah. in a lot of ways. If I would bring something in, and um, and I found I I, I re- figured out pretty quickly that I could sell things to him if I could if I could say this is like X Y or Z that you're that you're into. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, um, um, and then he and then he realized that, and he would come he would start coming back to me with like with like weird sonic ideas referencing records that he was also into. Right, right. Like the, you know, like the harpsichord on one for the cutters. He's like, do that, can you do that thing that's like, that's like that Stranglers song? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, harpsichord. Absolutely, I can do that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Or, but, um... Which, I, by the way, that made that song. Thank you. Like that, it, I, it's a controversial production well, choice. <laughs> well, it, it's a controversial production and it splits like, I mean, I'll, I'll just, Daria does not like that song. Yeah. And I don't, it's not because of the harpsichord, like, but it, it, it you know, it, for me, it it pulled it out of what could have been just this thing, and like, oh, this is sets it off and builds attention. Yeah, but the point being, I could, I if I if I was bringing in something that I knew was going to be musically controversial, yeah. I had to think of a way to to sell it in advance. Um, for for dissonant piano stuff, for example, like there's a there's a the piano player on a lot of those Bowie records from the mid seventies mm-hmm. does some really out Cecil Taylor type stuff. So it'd be like, oh, it's like that Bowie record, yeah. Or you know, like um, Bo, that Bo, those Bowie records were very handy in a lot of ways. Yeah. there was some some string stuff in in First Night that uh, that that. That I was able to be like, oh, listen to the end of Life on Mars, you know, <laughs> right, right? Or like, or like the synth sound in Navy Sheets. He's like, oh, it's like the Cars. Okay, I got it. You know, it, it, be, <laughs> it very put, much was. It, it puts somebody, if you know, if you can put a remind them of their comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. and, and that'll pull um, that'll pull a listener in too, yeah. because it's stuff that is in a. Uh, it, I mean, if you believe in a, in a thing like a music genome, like there's just stuff that mm-hmm. works. Like there's it, very it, little new timbre under the sun. No, there isn't, and so it's it, just new context. Yeah, and so if it works, then you you can like tap into that. Yeah, and not, uh, for lack of a better term, cheese it up. Yeah, like just sort of subtly be like this. You're gonna be a. You're gonna hear it and just your like mind, your body just reacts to it. Yeah, and you, but so to bring it back around to your initial question, mm-hmm. I don't think any of 
The only song that I've ever consciously on one of my solo records tried to make sound like American Music Club was World in Front of Versus the End of the Evening on the first record. <laughs> right. I tried to make sound like Johnny Mathis's feet. Nice. Um, but the rest of it is just like that, st- that stuff and Mercury in particular is so deeply in my DNA. I don't listen to those records anymore. Right. Because I listened to them so much. Yeah. And I got so deep into figuring out how the chords worked and everything. And that that is just part of how I play guitar, yeah, and and how I think about, yeah, singing. You know, I sing the way I do. I'm pretty sure because of because of singing along to American Music Club records. Yeah, yeah. All right. Come in, come in. Yeah, of course. Nice guitar. Or at least that basically set my my idea for what I liked in in a singing style that then like others then I it, was able to find other stuff like Scott Walker like the Divine Comedy like um, some of that more you know theatrical declamatory yeah, style yeah to then be like this is a this is a this is a wellspring that I can tap into yeah I mean it's always something that just builds a vocabulary that's right and then your vocabulary becomes you it's up to you to uh, i guess customize it yeah uh, i wonder I mean, if it's if it's about building a vocabulary or even building up a set of muscle memory in your vocal cords right it's like why did, why is there a generation of american punk rockers that sang with british accents because they grew up <laughs> listening to joe strummer well yeah absolutely <laughs> so it's you like learn the, to sing in a certain way and you never quite cure yourself of yeah that. yeah yeah for sure yeah it's um yeah i mean that that stuff is like to me like personally fascinating i mean i like i've been playing since i was like five mm. and i don't really do anything with it but like it can you can see how stuff and like seeing like my nieces now learning stuff uh you just see little like see what you're pulling from and then you see little personalities from so for me it's like old school rem and like pink floyd and sure. some mix of that and to the point like i honestly i i can very rarely listen to like murmur anymore mm. um although i will say when uh the last war on drugs album came out like put on like mid-80s floyd like that i was just like yeah um, it's funny i just heard that that record a couple tracks um it was Andrew from Against Me. Yeah, is played on my on my the record yeah. I'm working on right now, and he's super into that record. Yeah, and I've been hearing about it. And War on Drugs had opened for Hold Steady a bunch of yeah, years ago. Yeah, it just did. And I was and at the time I was like they weren't they weren't much of a live show. Mm-mm. It was kind of like Flaming Lips, and I was like I don't know about these yeah. guys. And he put on the record, and that's that's one of the bands I'm talking about. It's like this sounds like fucking. Late '80s Dire Straits. It does. It's like, unbelievable. Like, people say this dire is what people Floyd. are. Yeah. You know, same thing with Future Islands. It's like, I was that. This is funny. You know, like I can't believe this is the thing that um, that you know everything has its moment. In, everything every, has its moment. Everything has its moment. And I mean, in in defense of like Future Islands, I'm I, not mad at Future Islands. By the way, I think like that guy's that guy's anybody with a with a with a an original. Stage presentation is okay in my book. I honestly, and now since you brought it up, like I hadn't thought about it in these terms. I haven't seen somebody with that much stage presence, except for you, <laughs> like before that, because it was like we we 
did a review of the album on the podcast, and one of the people, like, they're really angry about, like, this guy's voice. They couldn't... And that seems to be, like, a really polarizing thing, which... Well, I think it's funny what the, you know, the bluebird of cool lands yeah, yeah, on yeah, yeah. For, for a few minutes, because... I get criticized a lot for so- for sounding like Meatloaf. People don't like <laughs> people who don't like my voice. Say he sings like Meatloaf, and so and somebody did say that in the same week that the Future Islands record came out, and people were going nuts for it. And I was just thinking, it's so funny yeah. that the one guy who sings like Michael McDonald <laughs> for this moment is the pinnacle. <laughs> you know, in yeah. the same breath, the guy who sings like Meatloaf is, is, is that's like the ultimate. Who insult has ruled and all? Brush off. Like Meatloaf has ruled all. Well, it's so just you know, I I'm neither here nor there on Meatloaf. I'm not. It's not not part of my DNA. But whatever, right, right, like right. people theatrical vocals. That's for some people. That's what that's their reference point. I, I'm just talking about how the the wheel of fortune yeah, comes yeah, around no, in terms no, of it, what's, it what's acceptable it, and what's not. Yeah, and I think in their case though, it, it does. Honestly, it lands on the performance, and with you, I think it does. Like uh, it, it'll land on the performance. Like people are gonna like that, but they're concentrating on a very specific part of the music, and not, I guess, the whole thing. Well, people are gonna like it because they like the one YouTube clip. Yeah, well, that too. right. I mean, that's re- that that's too. the way it works in the in the in the current day. Yeah, you know, I think I think he's a really cool singer. And it really is inter- cool singing. I don't, I'm not crazy about the rest of about the the context. Yeah, but you know, I'm glad that someone like that can have success. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I they they just actually played the 930 Club, which you played a couple times. Yeah. Like, and uh, it was a. Uh, I mean, they're from Baltimore, so it's sort of a homecoming show. But it, it was. Um, I find I find actually the context sort of fascinating because. Mm. Uh, it, it whether to put on or not, uh, we're actually trying to talk to him like we're doing right sure. now. Um, something connects and you feel it. Well, I think he's. he's I mean, my, my impression is he's a very sincere guy. And then that you, can be an actor, or not. But I mean, you know. Well, here's what I think, and and you know, I get into this conversation a lot about about people who are very much in the pop world, mm-hmm. right? Do they? Do they? How much do they mean it? How much is it sincere? I think you. How much is it like a crass showbiz thing? You know, people in a in an entirely different echelon than we're talking about now, right? And my personal opinion is that you can't be Barry Manilow, or you can't be Dolly Parton, Mm -hmm. or you can't be Bette Midler unless you're entirely invested. You can be a showbiz professional and be you know cynical or whatever, but. You can't actually, it's not actually that easy to write a schmaltzy pop song that <laughs> right. succeeds. Right. Right? You have to be that kind of person who can tap into that kind of thing, yeah. like the, a Karen Carpenter, you that, know, yeah, like that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, thing, yeah. Um, to really, you know, the people who are into that kind of music can smell insincerity, I think. Yeah, well, you can you can smell it, and then or like you you don't, and it 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 goes away like that. Yeah, and then, and then what ends up sticking is the stuff that like you know. I mean, like to be clear, like not, just to revisit real quick, like the Future Islands thing. I, I think they spent a few records 
finding themselves getting yeah. there. And I, I think they found themselves on this. I, I saw them open for Y Oak probably like two, three years ago. And it was just fucking weird, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, this guy has all the feelings at once on us. Like yeah. it's putting it and it it didn't but somehow that like he can do that and he's finding his way. And well, I think it really, it, it, it shines a light on the way that a lot of indie rock fandom works yeah, yeah. In, in an unflattering way because you see people, I've, I've seen a couple people say, oh, I saw that band open for so-and-so a couple years ago and I thought they were terrible, but now I realize how awesome it is. Yeah. It's like, well... You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and this was now you realize because because the wave of of, uh, of groupthink has washed over you. Yeah, they and, were the same band, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and and in my case, like people were like being obviously like Jen Wasser from Wyack was like this. They everybody was saying they were fucking awesome. Yeah, like it, it was just a uh, it was it was just at that at that particular show it was just a like. Not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, context means a lot. I mean, there yeah. was, I was reminded because the other day I played a, a show in in the in New York with uh, with a bunch of like singers from '90s emo bands. Nice. Uh, included, but the headliner was was Matt Pryor from the Get Up Kids, nice. and it reminded me that in the first year that I was in the Hold Steady, we played a couple shows opening for the Get Up Kids on their first reunion mm-hmm. tour, and it was crickets. I mean, it couldn't have been a worse match than for for their crowd. Or there were, there were two bills we did with that was World Inferno, Hold Steady, Bouncing Souls. And also, again, it's like totally contextual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially because those nights I was actually playing with all three bands, so I got to see <laughs> the reactions. It's like, oh man, one of these guys is like, not like the other. These guys, these guys, these guys. This so. is a, yeah. But so, it, yeah, I mean, it is a, is a matter of putting the right, the right act in front of the right crowd. Yeah. I mean, one of the nice things about doing solo things is, is, you, is I can... And one of the reasons I wanted to start doing solo shows to circle back to a to a question that yeah. I didn't really get to, uh, getting on twenty or thirty minutes ago now probably yeah, that's fine. was that I had always been a sideman in bands, which mm-hmm. I really enjoy, but it had started to seem not like a challenge. Like I knew right. what moves I could do that would get a cheer, and what what things you know expressions I could make in the publicity photos that would be effective, and yeah. like all this stuff. And it's like as a performer, as a if you're going to be mm-hmm. a professional performer, and I thought a lot about this, what's the next challenge? And it's it's to step up there without the advantages of volume. Yeah, you know, particularly without the without all the advantages that that being in a large group of people bring with it, and still try to entertain a room. And that was the next thing, really. And have you found that that's happening? I found I have acquired those skills. You've acquired so right. That's a different skill. set. How are people reacting though? I mean, do people come out and be like, "Oh, it's just the guy from the whole study"? Or they no, out? no. I mean, well, I mean, we're what I started. It's we're seven years deep now into True. doing solo shows. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I have I have a, a you know a, a, a people come to me from all different places. Yeah. Some of them are from Hold Steady. Some of them are from World Inferno. A, a bunch of them are from. I opened for Frank Turner in England, and he yeah. has a particularly rabid fan base over there. Indeed. So a lot of them are like that guy who Frank took on tour. Yeah. Um, and 
And but then you know I'm not a big enough name on my own where I don't play most of my shows in front of people who have who I'm a stranger to, mm-hmm. and so, um, and so that's really the the challenge. And the reason I, I'm coming back to this is is talking about the context of the performer and the audience, the freedom that you have as a solo performer yeah. to tailor your act to the audience that you perceive it to be. And to really, you know, on a on a minute by minute basis, chart their their reaction and and you know it's like fishing, you know, keep yeah. them on the hook, keep them on the yep. hook, don't let that one couple walk out the door, right, you know, right, right, <laughs> right. right. Well, and that's really the um, that's that's the challenge, and that's the and and it's difficult. I mean, this year has been has been has been tricky. I feel like I've. I've, I've I've felt like I'm I felt like I'm not at the top of my game and like that I'm that I'm a little bit broken as a performer and I'm so I'm trying mm-hmm. to 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 figure out um, how it's going to be going forward. Well, I I mean I think in, we should like probably wrap it up soon. Right. Like the I show, can talk the show, forever. The show <laughs> you're playing. Well, I mean honestly, you're welcome to come back. Uh, I mean, you said you're have have, have, have local ties. We're over that way a little bit, so. But well, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I think uh, the takeaway is that it's it's sort of incredible to hear you say that because I think if you look at your body of work, like people would look at that and be like, "This guy has done it," and that's why I said it was sort of intimidating up front, not to circle back, that's because. Kind of- you know, you make your music. You you write. You know, now you're raising a family. You're, you're doing all this, and and being just a a true artist. Um, and to hear you say, you're always going to question that. That's comforting. That means, like, you're thinking about it. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's true. I mean, there's always. That opens up a whole can of worms. It does. I don't think we have time well, for it right look, now. Well, look, man, uh, <laughs> seriously, anytime you want to come by, you're more than welcome. We will cook you and your family dinner. And uh, fucking awesome talking Thank to you. Thank you. Appreciate like, it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Cheers. Have a good trip, man. There you have it. Uh, sitting down with friends, Nikolai. I, uh, I think after all these, I, I always say, like, 
uh, hope it was as much fun to listen to as it was doing. But but I really mean that. I mean this is especially this one. Uh, like I said, just a, just a solid dude uh, making some great goddamn music. Um, the show that night was amazing. I know he has an album in the works. Uh, hopefully we'll get him back to talk about that album when he uh, when it's coming out. So that I don't think that'll be too long, but I will uh, check uh, and see what's going on. So that is it for our podcast this week. If uh, We're going to put a link there uh, to all of Franz's albums, all of uh, anything you want to know about Franz Nikolai that you did not learn there, which hopefully you learned a lot. Um, next week uh, we may be doing a double interview week, uh, sort of sort of backing up some stuff. But uh, either way, Tuesdays, Thursdays, uh, we're going to have something out for you. So uh, thanks for listening to us. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, and uh, we will talk to you soon. 